Ladies and gentlemen, we're continuing today on our preaching through the fruit of the Spirit. And today we're going to be preaching through the concept of joy. So just to rehash real quick. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Joy. <laughs> Whew, what a word, right? Whenever we are hearing about church or singing about Christmas especially or diving through things, joy is a word that pops up a lot over and over again. Rejoice is tied all the time through the songs we sing. Joy to the Lord is one of the things that we sing out. Joy to the world. Joy to the Lord. Is that actually a song? I just make that one up. Joy to the Lord. I just made it up. But it sounded so Christianese that all y'all thought it was real, right? Joy is a topic that people act like Christians are supposed to understand well, right? Oh, just be happy. Just be filled with joy. Aren't you so joyful at all times in your life? Just be happy and joyful and glad. Have good tidings and cheer. Whatever phrases you want to use, right? But what is joy actually? And we're going to just real quick narrow down one definition. I want you all to remember. This is what I think joy is. It's hope made manifest. It's hope right now. All right? But that's not enough. We're going to dive into better definitions. One thing we need to know is what we're talking about whenever we discuss things like joy. And so what is joy? Joy is. Are you ready? Joy is an emotion. Or a state of being, nurtured and created by the Holy Spirit, as he allows us to better glimpse the Father's goodness and love. Joy is an emotion or state of being, nurtured and created by the Holy Spirit, as he allows us to better glimpse the Father's goodness and love. This is joy. And specifically, this is joy from our perspective. Whenever I'm talking about joy, this is what I'm talking about. It is an emotion or state of being based off of who God is and what he has done. Okay? Joy is our hope made manifest within us. This is our joy. But joy is also. Remember how love is one of the main things that we're supposed to be doing as followers of Christ. We're supposed to be uh, showing it and proclaiming it with our lives. Because love is also an attribute of God, it's basically his main communicable attribute. Well, check this out. Joy is also an attribute of God. It's part of who he is. But his joy is an, joy is an attribute of God, born of his awareness of his love, and his faithful care of us. This is joy from God's perspective. Joy is an attribute of God born of his awareness of his loving and faithful care of us. So whenever we're talking about joy from a human perspective, joy is what we feel based off of who God is and what he has done, right? And whenever we look at it from God's perspective... Joy is what God feels based off of who he is and what he has done. Make sense? Let's dive into some of this. We're going to start off with this concept of God's joy. And God's joy made manifest. When you consider God and his joyfulness, do any verses pop into mind, anything you can think of that would point out to whenever God is joyful, that shows the sort of things that God finds joy in? There's two that pop immediately to my mind. The first one is in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And Hebrews 12 is one of my favorite sections of scripture because it is one of the ones that basically is Paul crescendoing this giant argument he's been making for the entire book of uh, Hebrews. He walks through... A giant, like two, not Paul, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews, which was very definitely not Paul. But anywho, Hebrews author, 
is building this big crescendoing argument where they're walking through all of these people who have lived faithfully and undergone suffering and persecution, but who joyously were serving their creator every moment of their lives. Imperfectly. They weren't perfect. But they still showed their faithfulness and goodness as they were growing in him. And this whole argument builds with, like, from this is what Rahab did. This is what Abraham did. This is what Moses did. This is what, and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And it's by faith, by faith, by faith. Then we get to the top of this crescendo. And it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since this is who surrounds us, all of these people who have borne faithful witness to God, let us throw off everything that entangles, the sin that so easily hinders, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, okay? So he calls for, since we've seen what God has done through all these people's lives, may we persevere through the hardships that we undergo, right? And then it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, or looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him, for that which he was going to do for it. What brought Jesus joy? What he did for you on the cross. Don't believe me? Check these verses out. Luke 15, 3 through 10, it's a set of parables Jesus talked about. In each section we're talking about, now we're going to have a parable to accompany it, all right? And so these parables are fun. Jesus is describing the kingdom of God and describing what God is doing in it. And he says this, So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he's found it? So if you're a shepherd and you have 99, if you have 100 sheep and one of them goes missing, who doesn't chase after that one that's missing? Who doesn't, right? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So he draws this parable of this shepherd who has a lost sheep and who goes off and seeks to find his sheep, to rescue the sheep who is in distress. And whenever he's found him, he rejoices greatly because that which he values and loves has been found and brought back into the fold. And then he says that type of joy is what God feels whenever a person who needs to repent repents and becomes one with their father. That's God's joy. He goes on. Jesus continues on. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Check this out. Whenever people become followers of Christ, whenever they repent of their sins, and whenever they pour themselves out to him and trust in him for their forgiveness, their salvation, there is a party in heaven. When you became a follower of Christ, God and his angels rejoiced. And they have been rejoicing from the beginning of time because they knew you would make that decision. God's joy is made manifest in the work he is doing for those he loves. He takes joy in saving and rescuing you. This is God's joy. If we, as followers of Christ, are called to be joyous like he is, what does our joy look like then? What brings us joy? Do you think it's the present circumstances that surround us? Do you think it's the things that make us happy in the moment now? Or do you think it's something else? Let's talk about human joy for a second. Our joy. Another parable of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
touches on joy again. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. There is something good and hidden that is coming, that you can find, that you can anticipate, that you know is going to happen. So imagine you own a piece of land, or you know a piece of land just down by your house. Say you've got like some woods next to your house that you don't own, but you play back there all the time, and you're hanging out over there. And you wander into the field, and you're wandering around, you're playing in the woods, and you kick over the stump, and then you stand up, and then you realize that, oh my goodness, the stump, whenever you open it up, is just like the candy stump that they had in the movie Heavyweights. Anybody? Come on, some of you are my age. No? Maybe instead of delicious candy, it's filled with gold. Whatever, fine. I like the candy one. Y'all are like, whatever. How has no one seen that movie? It's on Netflix. Watch it. It is worth it. My favorite movie about a fat camp ever. Okay. So, anywho. It, it brings me happiness, not joy. Don't worry. Okay. You find this treasure in this thing you don't own. But you know it's there. And no one else owns it. No one else claims it. And if you own the land, you know you get to have it. You know it's good. You know it's worthwhile. You know it's awesome. And that field costs $40,000 to buy. That land costs $40,000 to buy. And you know what? Goodness, everything you own right now, all of your house, all of your jewelry, all of your money, your iPhone X is a point of that. Decent percentage, actually. All of it comes out to about $40,000. And you happily give up everything you have now for the sake of what you could have in the future. That points out joy. Our joy is not based on our present circumstances, what we have now. Our joy is based on what we are going to have in the future. John 16 is probably the biggest section that talks about joy in this way. Jesus is giving his farewell address to his disciples. He has told them that he has to leave, and they don't know what he means by leave. They don't know that he's saying he has to die. But he says, it's time for me to go away. And they're like, whatever, what's he talking about? We don't know why he's saying these crazy things. And so in a little while, you will see me no longer. This is Jesus. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So in a little while, you won't see me. Then a little while more, you'll see me, right? So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, like, what's he saying? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And I'm going to be honest, just to kick this out here, I love the refreshing take on the disciples we sometimes see because oftentimes they're held up perfectly in the saintly image, all wearing white robes, all doing big hands while they're standing around tables with Jesus, like halos everywhere and whatnot. But these guys are just like, we have no idea what you're saying. You're talking and I've got no idea. What are you talking about? Doesn't that sometimes strike you about the random things you read in the Bible? Like, what is this he is saying? Anywho, don't worry. They didn't always get him either, okay? Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will, not, you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So you will be sad. The world will be happy. The world will have this state of goodness. They'll think that justice has happened. They'll rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, the joy that a human being has been, for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So consider a mother who goes through extreme pain for the sake of birthing a child but then the extreme joy that they have once that is done because something greater than the pain they went through has come into the world, right? So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You see, Jesus is pointing out the fact that his disciples are going to feel hopeless for a little while 
And they did. When Jesus died, his disciples feel hopeless. If you want to know how hopeless, men and women who had given up their lives beforehand, who had spent three years following him around, who had believed that he was the Messiah, the one coming of God, the one who would bear the crown of Israel and bring it back up into the great nation that they thought it was supposed to be, these people who were following him faithfully, when he died, scattered and went back to their homes and went back to their old jobs. They gave up. They left. In the book of John, whenever Jesus reencounters his disciples following his resurrection, he meets Peter and I believe Andrew and John on the side of the Sea of Galilee where he had first met them. And they're back to fishing. They'd been fishermen again. Now, if you want an image of joy, Imagine this. Whenever Jesus sees his disciples standing on the shore, while he's standing on the shore, while they're out in the boat, he sees them out working and laboring tirelessly to bring in a catch of fish. And they've been fishing all day and they've got nothing. Fun story, back before they first met Jesus, whenever Peter was first getting to know Jesus, whenever Jesus was first calling him as a disciple, Peter was fishing, hanging out on the boat, had caught nothing all day, nothing good. And so Jesus, following his resurrection, standing on the Sea of Galilee, looks out at Peter and says, hey, try the other side. Fun story. Back whenever Jesus first met Peter, and Peter had been fishing all day, Jesus went to him and said, hey, try the other side of your boat. Right? What Jesus did when he first met Peter is the same thing he did whenever he came back to Peter. And the first time, whenever Peter threw his net over the other side of the boat, there was such a great catch of fish, it almost capsized the boat. It was so heavy, they couldn't pull the nets in the whole way. And that's whenever Peter said, you know what? I'm giving up this fisherman's life. I'm going to come follow you. He came to shore with his catch, and he was amazed. Second time, whenever Peter throws his net on the other side and reels it in, and there's this great miraculous catch, he looks back to shore and he realizes who is speaking to him and he doesn't bring his catch back and he dives off the boat and swims to shore and kneels before the feet of his risen savior. Imagine that feeling. You have gone back to your old life. The thing that had given you purpose for years was gone. The one who had called you out of your present situation was gone and you've returned back to the crap that you've gotten yourself into. And then the same Savior shows up again and shows you the same love, grace, and compassion and calls you right back. And your heart jumps, and you dive after him. That feeling, when you first have the epiphany of who it is that's talking to you, that is joy. That is your hope manifest. No one will take your joy from you. But our joy is not from now. We think of joy as a positive emotion. It's one that makes us feel good, right? Generally, yeah. Joy feels good. But there are other types of positive emotions, or even just emotions in general, that make us feel good as well. There's happiness. There's pleasure. There's gratitude. There's just general goodness or kindness. There's just feelings of happiness, right? There's a lot that makes us happy in this world or could make us happy. Joy is different from the things that could make us happy because joy is not rooted in the circumstances of this world. When we think of the opposite of joy, the antithesis of joy, oftentimes we think of things like sadness or grief. But sadness and grief aren't the antithesis of joy. Because you can be joyous while you're sad. You can be joyous while you're grieving. The antithesis of joy is to seek pleasure in the here and now and for it to be your main source of, of happiness or contentment in life. The antithesis of joy is the idea that is brought up in the book of Ecclesiastes. Whenever the writer says, what is there left in this world? All we have is to eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. 
if our hope is in this world, we no longer have the possibility of joy. All we have possibly are some small grafts of pleasure to try and grab onto and make ourselves happy. Things that don't last. Joy is about what Christ has done and what he will do. It is not about feeling good in this moment. Contrast this with worldly worldly pleasure, which at best dives into eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And at worst is, I'm going to get what I can now. I'll try and make a name for myself that will be remembered, and there's nothing else that's worthwhile. We're not seeking pleasure in everyday moments. Do we have to be upset when it happens? No, pleasure is not a bad thing in and of itself, right? It's okay to be happy whenever you enjoy spending time with friends. It's okay to be happy with your family and the people who are around you. It's okay for you to enjoy uh, sex whenever it's with the people you're called to have sex with, right? Whenever it's with your spouses. It's okay to enjoy it. But if your happiness and contentment in life is based off of feelings of pleasure in the present moment, you're screwed because that can't last. We live in a world that is broken, right? We live in a world that is fallen and that Christ is redeeming, but it is not yet totally redeemed. The effects of sin and death and depravity and our own brokenness still last. Our joy is not from now. Check this out. In Matthew 10, we can see that Joy is not about how good we feel at a moment, right? So this is the Beatitudes. Jesus is speaking through the blessed are you whenever this happens, this happens, this happens. These are the last two. Blessed are you whenever others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I skipped a verse. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how it starts, all right? So blessed are you whenever you're persecuted for righteousness. Fears is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad whenever you are suffering persecution, revilement, and the utterings of evil men against you. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is not here. Your reward is in heaven. Your hope is to come. James 1, 2 through 4 says this. Count it all as joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and when steadfastness has full effect, that you may be perfectly complete, lacking in nothing. Take joy when you face trial or hardship, or testing. Be joyful in the midst of trial and hardship because trial brings about perseverance, which is what steadfastness is. The testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance come to fruition that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We can take joy in our present circumstances, even if they're testing and trialing, because we know that at some point, God will use these things to bring us to perfect completion in him. He's doing it. Back in Hebrews 12, again, let us fix our eyes not on this world, not on the things that are here, not on the sin that entangles, not on everything that hinders, not on uh, everything that tries to pull us down. What do we fix our eyes on? Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for his joy endured the cross for you. That is where joy comes from in our lives. Joy is not of this world. In Romans 12, there's this giant list of things that Paul is calling for Christians to be, and it's a really good list to read through, but I'm going to pull off three of them because I love the fact they go right in order. Rejoice in hope. Not rejoice in now, but rejoice in the hope you have. Be patient or steadfast in tribulation. So whenever hardship and trial come through, be patient and be constant in prayer. Did we just lose our computer again?
I'm like, I'm going to have trouble being joyful right now if we lose another computer. <laughs> Be constant in prayer. Continue in prayer. Those three tie together really well, guys. Rejoice in your hope, be patient, and be constant in prayer. If we are trusting in this world for joy, we are trusting in something that is broke, filled with death, pain, constant sorrow, and something that is impermanent. Our joy is not from now. Our joy is about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what we know he will do in the future, that he will finish the good work he began. This is what allows us to be joyful as followers of Christ in the midst of suffering, persecution, trial, famine, brokenness, because we're going to be joyful. Now, please note, it is Christ and his spirit revealing to us his goodness that allows us to have this joy. It is not a thing that is normal and of us. It is not something that we can do on our own. It is an act of him in our lives. That's why it's one of his fruit. We have to be open and accepting of the fact that he can make us joyful in the midst of our circumstance, but he's the one who's going to do it, not us. constant in prayer part becomes a little more important. Begging for him to do it. Now check this out real quick. If you want to see a complete picture of what we as followers of Christ have to be joyful for, one more section of scripture. 1 Peter 1, 3-9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When we see what Christ has done for us, and is doing for us. When we step outside of our present circumstance and look toward what he is doing, what he has offered us and handed to us, we can have this inexplicable, inexpressible joy that comes solely and fully through him and is not of us. It's of him. Can you see why followers of Christ are expected to be joyful? Why joy is one of the fruit of his spirit being born in us? Because if we understand the great mercy and love our Father has lavished on us by offering himself up for us, what other response is there beyond absolute joy? Amen? Amen. Now, Practical. Let's kick this one. I've lost my joy, or I never had it. What do you do whenever you feel like you've lost your joy? And I can be honest, if there is any follower of Christ in here who is older than, say, seven, there's probably been a point in your faith where you've just said, you know what, I don't in any way, shape, or form feel joyful right now. All of my joy is gone. I feel broken. I feel depressed. I feel stomped on by this world, by my friends, by my loved ones. I feel stomped on by God. We've said that before, right? Everyone has felt that way before. So know this, you are in good company if you have ever felt this way or if you're feeling it now. Pretty much every believer ever has gone through this. And the reason why every believer has gone through this is for the same reason. Because every believer, 
lives in the same world, which is full of broken things and full of broken people and full of broken time. We ourselves are broken, right? It's not uncommon. And it's okay for you to feel this way. You don't have to feel bad or ashamed or hide it. As a matter of fact, one of the things that often prolongs it in our lives is whenever we're unwilling to admit it. Because we feel like we have to keep on these happy faces around Christians especially. And say, no, I'm okay. Everything's good. God is so good, guys. God is so good. Even though I feel like I'm dying a little bit inside. Right? You don't have to pretend to be happy. And pretending to be happy often kills any possibility of even being joyful in your sadness. So my first piece of advice to you, if you're saying I've lost my joy or if you're saying I've never had it, be willing to talk about it openly, preferably with other believers. You don't have to be fake. But also, if talking with other believers is a little bit helpful, it's a smidge, there's probably someone else you can talk to about it who might be able to help a little bit more even than followers of Christ. Jesus himself, right? Have you ever chosen not to pray for something because you felt like it reveals too much of yourself to God? Like, oh, if I say that, he'll know. (laughs) Oh, he'll know. He'll learn. Guess what? He already knows, okay? He knows. Admitting you're feeling a lack of joy to Jesus is not telling him new information. He understands it. In fact, he's probably waiting for you to submit yourself to him and to say, Jesus, I don't feel joyful. I need your help. Show me you love me. I'm going to make you a promise, honestly. (laughs) If you earnestly beg Jesus for him to show you he loves you, and if you're willing to take time and listen, he'll show you. His love note is written and has been written for over 2,000 years. He's been speaking his love to you every moment of every day. (laughs) He just needs you to hear it. May he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you are having trouble feeling joy, pour out your sorrow, grief, anger, pain, discontentment, upsetness to the one who can bring you joy and ask him to restore it. It might be worth spending some time reading through concepts of joy and what they're tied to. If you don't know this, the word for joy in the New Testament is chera or kara, C-H-A-R-A in English. And this word is tied completely to the same word for God's grace, charis. His grace on you is what will allow you to experience joy. You have to trust that he will give it to you and beg him for it. So I'm going to ask a question. Who here feels like the last two to three months have just been beating the crap out of you? Guys, I've been to the hospital five times for four people in four weeks. In my family. There's not that many more people in my family, guys. We're a pretty small family. 
In the past week, uh, I had to take Anne to the emergency room. I was thrown up on three times by Audra in the same night. I slept a total of nine hours in three days. I got an ear infection somehow. <laughs> I was swimming on my vacation. Super awesome vacation, guys. Come home, pain radiating from up here all the way down through the bottom of my jaw and like burning and raising going up through here. It was awesome. Like, it was wonderful. And Anna has been tired, and Audra's been tired, and Christy's back has been hurting. We've been dealing with our car companies, and we've been messing with all this stupid crap over and over again. Oh. Christy got in a car accident, right? By that, I mean someone slammed into her car while she was sitting stationary. So not really her fault. Duh. She wasn't sitting anywhere she wasn't supposed to be. And whenever she hit, our insurance took over at first, got us a rental car. Their insurance company took over all of our damage, got us a rental car. They took the rental car price over. I got called like three, five days ago, like Monday. It's the middle of me being thrown up. I've slept two hours. I'm supposed to be working. I've been at the ER. All this is happening. That was Monday for me, right? Monday. Get a call from the rental car company. Hey, uh, no one's paid your rental bill yet for this car you've had for 20 days. It's currently sitting around $700. So, you gonna pay that? Uh, I wasn't supposed to. And I'll be honest, $700 is a rough amount, but for me and Chrissy's life circumstance, it's actually not that rough. We have that in savings, we'll be okay. Uh, even if it happens, it's just more of the, I am super frustrated and everything bad is happening and nothing else can go wrong, what else can go wrong? I'm to the point that I am actually now becoming paranoid at times whenever, like, my family goes outside or whenever Christy's going to the store. Because I'm like, there's only, like, three more levels of bad that can happen here. Like, we're hitting pretty close. Like, there's permanent injury, there's death, and there's just gone forever. Like, whatever, right? I'm starting to freak out at times because I am a paranoid person in life. Like, and if you haven't been able to tell, I'm kind of high-strung at times. A little bit. Anywho, just everything is happening. I get mad, and I call their insurance company and just get nothing because, you know, obviously, which should bring me back a little bit into, oh, my life's not so bad. For some reason, all of the insurance companies are really busy right now. Can't think of why. <laughs> oh, maybe my life isn't as bad as I think it is. Okay, hold on. All right. But hey, they're all really busy, so I got no one at their insurance company. Called our insurance company. Spoke to a lovely young lady named Joy. Didn't care, didn't phase me. All right, whatever. Joy, I am annoyed. Let me tell you I'm annoyed, Joy. This is what annoys me about life right now. I need you to fix it, Joy. She's like, I'm on it. Then I, being me, also called back the other company to yell in a different direction because when I get frustrated, I have a bunch of customer service background, I know how to make customer service people nervous. <laughs> okay? I've done it long enough. I can do it if necessary. Hi, I'd like to speak to your supervisor, please. No, you cannot help me at this level. Next supervisor, please. Oh, no, I won't get mad, but I will continue to escalate, and I will remember your name. May I ask your name and your ID, please? I will know who you are if you're unhelpful. <laughs> Things that just make people cringe a little bit whenever they're dealing with me because I can't get hung up on by them because I'm never mean, but I know how to act perturbed. Anywho, so I call to do my thing. Get a hold of someone in Nationwide named Joy. <laughs> So I'm annoyed at life, losing all my joy, getting angry, getting upset at life, and then I call and speak to one joy, and then I just ignore it and continue on, call and speak to another joy. Just everyone's named Joy. What's up with this? Oh. 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 I am not being joyful. I am not joyful now for some reason. I lost my joy. Fun story in recognizing that I lost my joy and in seeing the way in which God reminded me of the fact I lost my joy. Silly point. Kind of restored my joy because God himself saw fit to just drop constant reminders in my brain. 
I wasn't planning on preaching this sermon this week until three weeks ago, and then two weeks ago all this started happening. But I was probably not feeling joyful before it. I'd probably lost my joy before that. He used this sermon to make me read through about his goodness and mercy and grace for the entire week. I had to spend this entire week reading about how much Jesus loves me. Because of you people, I'm just throwing that out here. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here right now. He used this to bring me back my joy. To let me know that I have hope outside of this world. That the work he is doing, he will bring to completion. And that it's not my work to push through and fix. I don't need to do it. I just need to submit. And to realize his goodness, his gracefulness, his greatness and to accept his love. This allows me to have joy. Joy that surpasses understanding. That goes beyond what would make sense for a normal situation. This is why we can see people in the midst of extreme persecution demonstrate joy. This is why at times we can see people who have gone through horrific events in life experience joy. This is why we can see brothers and sisters in Christ rejoicing together in sorrow. Do you want to know one of the most joyful experiences I have ever seen in my life was? It was the funeral of a 43-year-old man who died in a motorcycle accident. And his funeral was the most joyful event I have ever been to. Sad, oh yes, Lord, sad, very sad, but joyful. You see, this man, he had a twin brother. And these guys were related to a guy I know. They were his brother. He is the guy who discipled me, brought me up, taught me what it means to be a follower of Jesus. One of his brothers stepped away from the Lord, chose not to follow him anymore, just walked away, walked out of his life, walked out, and his family just left, right? And his family was hurt and broken by it because they love the Lord, and they know that he needs the Lord more than anything else in his life, right? And that guy walked away. And that guy developed terminal cancer of the esophagus. Relatively fast-moving, pretty much universally fatal at this point. He was dying had about a month left to live. And his brothers and their father gathered together and were praying for this other brother, praying that something would happen that would bring him back to God before he died. And his twin was one of the men praying that with anything, he would give up anything to have his brother know Christ before he dies. About two days later, he was riding his motorcycle. A car came around a blind corner over the line, hit him, killed him. This brother was the worship leader of a large church in the area. He loved Jesus with his whole life. He poured out his love and compassion and mercy to those around him. And he was well-respected and loved. His funeral had like a thousand people at it. The guy who mentored me, his brother was up on stage leading worship during this funeral. (laughs) Leading people to worship God during his tragic brother's death about two weeks before his other brother dies. And everyone was joyful because while they were sad, he was with his father. His brother came back. brother died a couple weeks later. The family lost two brothers now, but they have two waiting for them. You can have joy in the midst of unspeakable tragedy. It is possible. Because your joy is not in what happens here and now. Your joy is in what Christ is doing in you and will do when he returns. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are so good. You are so good, we cannot fathom it. We can't begin to understand the depths of your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love. You pour out yourself on our behalf that we might have a relationship with you. You teach us what it means to be your follower. You proclaim your love daily. Lord, your grace abounds. Father, give us your joy. May we have joy that surpasses what would reasonably be expected because of our circumstances. May we have joy that exists in spite of our circumstances. Lord God, allow us to proclaim your goodness by the joy we demonstrate in the midst of trial, hardship, despair, pain. May we not seek the pleasures of this world, but may we seek that which we know comes only from you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for taking joy in the act of saving us. Thank you for being joyful that you could pour out your love for us. Lord God, we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, So at this point, we're going to step into a time of communion. Um, And here at City Church, um, we're open to all walks of faith. So whatever denomination, whether you're Catholic, Methodist, Eastern Orthodox, you're all welcome to participate in communion with us. And um, one of the things we try to do during communion is kind of talk about something to meditate on, to think on, uh, to process and to work out throughout the week um, in compliments to the sermon. And um, with joy, a couple months back I gave a sermon on suffering and the idea of suffering. Um, and the word that we get our suffering from, where it's derived from, actually means to be patient or long patience. Um, and so this idea that suffering produces this patience and perseverance brings out the hope and the joy, right? But if we go back to the creation account, and whether you take it literal or not, there's something that can happen there. There's something that's beautiful there that sometimes we tell people, all you need is God. You don't need anything else. All you need is God. But what we have here is an instance where Adam, in all of perfection, all he has is God. And what does he say? I'm lonely. He suffers in perfection. Because there's this need for each other. There's this need for one another. I can love Creed in a way that he can love me, and we can understand that. I can't love God in a way that he loves me. I can't fathom God. So he can love me wholly and fully perfectly. I can't do that. But what I can do is love Creed to the best of my ability and back to me. And in doing so, that glorifies and honors God. But even in perfection, there was suffering. And then you go through the books of Job, which is known for suffering and things like that. But this idea that even in Job, whether, again, whether it's literal or not, this idea that Satan has to go before God and ask for permission to even enter into this idea of tempting Job or of trying Job and stuff like that. And so as that's going on, these instances of suffering happen, so we do what? We go towards God. We go, we push towards them. I mean, if you try to think of any church father or saint or leader, Mother Teresa, try to think of those people and try to tell me where in their life they did not suffer. This idea that that, that is a byproduct of following Christ. You will suffer. The disciples all suffered, all died, all arguably were martyred off. You know? But what did that do? That brought about this enrichment to the faith. It spread because of that, because death was no longer a threat to them. Death was no longer something that bound them. And your perspective changes when you go towards God and when you're suffering and going through stuff. I mean, as Chris said, the past couple months for a lot of people has been really hard. My wife uh, was let go from her job, and we just got a house. And I was really upset and really mad about it, and then God just kind of revealed it to me. He's like, you are privileged that you're upset about how you're going to afford your house. You're privileged to have a home to even worry about. That is, that is a lucky place to be suffering when other people are dealing with losses of life and death and that are dealing with, you know, family problems and things like that. So your perspective changes. And so that needs to be very clear. But in the same sense, um, this idea that with this suffering, um, it's important that we're pursuing God, but we're also pursuing each other. If he is the head and we are the body, that body is all of us. Not just, you know, it's not just Jesus up there and then we're, we just compose the entire body. I may be a hand, but someone else is a foot. I need that foot to get somewhere so I can open that door. You know, it, there's these 
aspects of our faith that need to be one another. And as we suffer, we suffer together. As the body suffers, we suffer together. And that's part of it. I mean, what does Christ do? He literally personifies suffering and is a perfect example of that life. I mean, oftentimes we talk about the death that Christ lived, but, or that he had, but we forget to mention that he lived a perfect life. He didn't even deserve that suffering. We, on the other hand, do, but he still, we reap the reward of what he's done. He mediates on our behalf. But he didn't deserve any of that and dies this cruel death, is resurrected, and is coming back again to end suffering entirely. But he lived this perfect life. And so as we go throughout our week, um, and as our months, or maybe it's even felt like years of suffering, um, be reminded that Christ, who had this perfect body, that lived this perfect life, literally broke himself for us, literally poured out his blood on our behalf. And what, is, what are we called to do? We're called to carry that cross. And I love the analogy of carrying the cross because when is it ever enjoyable to carry a cross? When you're just like, you know what? Really feel like, you know, getting hung today, carrying this the entire way. It's kind of heavy. It's, it's not enjoyable. But that's part of our faith because we are not bound by death. We are not bound by politics. We are not bound by these worldly things that can challenge us and get in our minds and kind of make us feel really broken down. We are both waiting for the eternity to come, but it is also here and present now. And we can tap into that and be reminded that the Spirit, you know, that's part of the Trinity of God. We talk about the Father, we talk about Christ, but we rarely talk about the Spirit. It's just as much God as everything else is. And Christ said, it is greater that I send the Spirit than if I am sitting right there beside you. We have him literally with us and indwelling in all of us in here. And so be reminded of that. Talk to one another. You know, endure with one another. Be patient with one another. Suffer together. Um, so think about those things. Meditate on things. As you're praying and thinking about um, what God is trying to reveal through you through the suffering, uh, ask him maybe, you know, there's an area in somebody else's life you need to be pouring into where you can relate to that suffering. Sometimes it's you going through that crappy situation that enables God to enter into somebody else's life because it's relatable. It's far more relatable to have a conversation with somebody and be like, you know, I don't have it all together than it is to say, I have it all together. You know, so many coffee talks and things like that happen over a common, like, yep, life sucks. You know, someone can relate to that. We can relate to that. So be relatable, have conversations with each other, and more importantly, glorify God in all you do. So when you're ready, please feel free to come up and uh, participate in communion with us.